Welcome to episode five of the Teaching While Learning podcast. Now that you've made your way here, I hope you're ready to dive deeper into the ESL industry and get a glance of what it has to offer. The TWL podcast is dedicated to placing you in the shoes of current and former ESL teachers by bringing you their stories, experiences, and opinions. I'm your host, Tim Hillebrand. On today's episode, and the first in our series looking at the stressors one may encounter while teaching ESL, we have our first Scotsman joining us. Our candid conversation will revolve around the effects teaching had on his work-life balance and some of the challenges he faced with management at his school. After teaching ESL for four years in Taiwan, he decided to transition out of the industry and pursue other opportunities. Let's jump into my chat with Alan McIver. All right. Well, hello, Alan. How Hi. are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, my cool. pleasure. Can you start off by just kind of telling us what drew you to the ESL industry and why teaching English seemed like a good idea Yeah, when you were so young? Uh, that's <laughs> a good question. Okay, so I finished my master's degree in Scotland and I was trying to find jobs in music. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a musician. And it was 2008, so the financial crisis had really affected the economy in the United Kingdom. There were really very few opportunities, especially for recent, recent graduates, right? So I went for a, a drink with a friend of mine who ha, was doing his TEFL, and he had decided to go to Asia, not Taiwan, to Asia and teach English. And I kind of had this moment where I thought, oh, that sounds quite fun, actually. So we Googled teach English in Taiwan. So he had wanted to go to China and I thought that Taiwan seemed like a cool place to visit. I'd never been, but I had heard from a friend that it was a cool place to live. And so we Googled teach English in Taiwan. And then that first Google search, we just, we saw that you didn't need a TEFL. So he had a TEFL, but I didn't. So we applied, we did the interviews and then we booked the ticket. So you know, coming to teach English wasn't so much about wanting to teach English. It was about wanting to live abroad for more than just a short time to really kind of do a year. Sure. Well, yeah, that's, I think I'm pretty sure that's what everybody says that I've talked yeah. to on here so far. Oh, it's going to do a year and. Yeah, you know. right. Right. <laughs> awesome. Um, Did any other options come up as you were exploring? Um, you no. said that you like Taiwan, but, or you're interested in coming to Taiwan, but that was kind of the, you're just dead set on it. Uh, I had I was set on Taiwan. I, I didn't really care about the place. I mean, I had never been to Asia, so I wanted to experience Asia, and I wasn't super concerned about where we went. But you know, Taiwan seemed cool, and so we we decided to come out here. Yeah, awesome. And your is your friend still here then? Uh, he is still here. Yeah, we're both still here. Ten years later. Yes. Um, I forgot his name. He was in Panda. There we go. Awesome. You haven't seen him in forever. Yeah. Awesome. Well, what, before you before you arrived, what what kinds of things did you expect to do um, to experience while you were teaching? Well, I think I didn't expect the teaching part to be dominating my life. I expected to you know, come and explore Asia and go traveling and meet people and experience a different culture and maybe play some music, which is what I ended up doing. I, I enjoy playing music, so that's what I was aiming for. But I kind of wanted to just experience Asia. It wasn't really about the job itself. I didn't really care too much about the teaching side of things. Like I had no aspirations to be a teacher long term. So, yeah, the teaching was just a side. It was just a way of living here, basically. And it seemed like the only option. Yeah. And then did you, did you 
find that you enjoyed it at least a little bit after kind of diving in? I had a moment in teacher training that we were both a part of where I realized how seriously our company took took things. And mm -hmm. we were being told things like, if you fail the 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 practice class at the end, then we're going to send you home. And we, you know, there's a chance we might not offer you a contract. And so I had had this moment of realization where I was thinking, hold on, you know, I don't, this is not really what I wanted. And so it had really, it had turned me off from even the first week, really. And when we went down to Taichung, I lived in Taichung for my first two years I was quite scared about teaching and I really wasn't feeling terribly motivated and I was a bit scared, to be honest. I was very nervous. And my, my friend Panda, he really embraced teaching and I didn't, not mm. really, you know. Did you find ways to kind of overcome those initial feelings of, I guess, feeling overwhelmed? Yeah, I think the only way to become a better teacher, to become more... Uh, acclimatized in a classroom is to do it. I don't think, you know, the teacher training was nice because I met friends, but I think that, oh yeah, I think the only way to really get better at it is to do it. So being thrown into the classroom and after the first few weeks and then the month and then two months and then three months, I started to get more used to it. So it, it did become easier. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, it's funny that you hit on that because being thrown into the deep end is kind of a, um, I can un definitely understand how it feels overwhelming, but it's also a good thing as well, kind of like what you were hinting at. Just make, It forces you to, to do it and to get better and to yeah. kind of push yourself. I mean, I could imagine studying teaching for a year in a university or a class, whatever. If you, if you studied teaching forever, it wouldn't help. I don't, I don't think so. I think you have to do it kind of learn by doing one of those kind of professions. Before you had said that you didn't see yourself as a teacher, it wasn't something that you felt too um, passionate about, but you ended up doing it for four years. That's right. Why? There must have been something that you enjoyed about yeah, it. Yeah, that's... Oh, no, no, I shouldn't say that I didn't enjoy it. I wouldn't... That's not true. Okay. I, I Because I liked, I liked the kids. I thought the kids were really fun, and I've always, you know, enjoyed kind of... Um, being crazy Uncle Alan or whatever. I, you know, I think kids are really cute and really funny, especially in the kindergarten. They're so cute. Like the three-year-olds are super sweet. So I, I did enjoy the kids and I enjoyed the parents. I just didn't like the job too much. It was exhausting. It was really, really tiring. Like even, so now I don't, I don't teach. And even if I work a 12-hour day now, I'm still not as tired as if I taught three classes. Like teaching is exhausting. It really takes it out of you and you're sick all the time and you lose your voice. And so, yeah, I, I just don't, I don't think that I ever committed myself to becoming a better teacher. I think it just happened by doing, but I never really tried. I didn't prepare classes, really. I would just wing it. Yeah, so I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't the kind of employee that a school would want. I mean, I was good with the parents and I was good with the kids, but I was also quite a difficult employee. Yeah. Glad I wasn't your manager. I know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's um, okay. Well, that's a good, a good uh, lead into the next part. Before you said that you didn't, before coming here, you didn't expect the job to, to dominate your life right. as much as it did. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how work-life balance 
um, happens here, especially in Taiwan, right. because it's very different from what people think it is yeah. after getting here and actually experiencing it. Well, kindergarten and bushiban is very different. So a normal bushiban schedule is maybe two to nine or five to nine, but there's a huge amount of homework marking that you have to do. And so that is all unpaid and outside work. And it's between an hour or maybe 30 minutes minimum and maybe two hours maximum. And so, you know, between preparing for classes and marking homework, you're kind of working a full day. Yeah. So I'd say work-life balance and Bushiban is okay. I was still able to have fun outside work and, and you know, I had a band and we used to practice. And so I, I would say the work-life balance was okay, but still quite tiring. Yeah, kindergarten, it's a bit better. You, when you were teach, you said you taught um, kindergarten and bushiban. Were those at the same time? No, I no. never taught at the same time. My first two years were only bushiban, and then my second two years were only kindergarten. Okay, because at the um, our at this um, company that we're speaking about right, right now, they had um, a schedule where you could do kindy in the morning, and then you you would go and do bushiban in the afternoon. That sounds like a nightmare. Oh, I, I well, you're looking at somebody who did it for a year. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it yeah. was it was rough, exhausting. So work life balance. Well, I mean, it's just not there. You're working yeah. six days a week, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm really glad I didn't do that. I mean, the the pitfall of that is if you're teaching in a bushiban you're only paid for the hours that you teach. So let's say you go on a two-week holiday or you go back to see your family. You end up coming back to Taiwan with no money at all because you haven't taught for two weeks and you spent money back home. And so it's not a good way to save, really. You know, mm -hmm. working the four to six hours a day thing really is not, is not a good way to save money. How, well, how long were the, the classes that you taught? Uh, in my first two years, every class was two hours. Two hours. And then you said there was a lot of um, outside work that needed to be done in preparation for the next class. Um, so per two-hour class, how much correcting could should one expect to have? At least 30 minutes per two-hour class. Per two-hour class. Yeah, at least. And then so each, each weekday you would have three two-hour classes or two... I did about classes. I did between twenty two and twenty four hours a week. Okay, so you're looking at at least an extra almost twelve hours of yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think that would be yeah, I think that would be accurate. Yeah. Now let me ask you this: that that's a that's a huge chunk of time. So it, let's say there are more and more schools now here in Taiwan that are not requiring um, teachers to. Yeah. Mark homework, mark tests, things of this nature. If you if you took had taken all of the that marking time out, would you would the work life balance been about a lot better? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I would have. I resent it. I hated the marking homework mm. thing. It was such a chore, and it would be one of those things where you'd wake up in the morning and you'd have lunch and you'd maybe watch a TV show and then you'd realize, oh. I've got all of these books that I need to get through. And my, my roommate used to do it at night. So he would mark homework at 1 a.m. And I'd be like, what are you doing? So it was, it was a chore. Absolutely. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. It was never like, oh, this is great. I'm really enjoying this homework marking. Never like that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I remember one of the, one of the things that I, that really um, 
drove me crazy about the homework was after teaching two or three classes in a day, you're just so tired. You yeah. Just, you're so ready to get home like you had said before. And you're just like, I, I don't want to do this. But then you know it needs to be done. So you end up taking the work home with you. And oh, correcting of course. It. And that's just such a, a terrible, terrible idea, especially for work-life balance. I did all of my homework marking in my house. I would take oh. all of it home. Yeah, I would never do it in Because you office. just wanted to get out of there. Yeah, I would want so to get out. Yeah. I didn't want to hang out. And yeah. I didn't want to go that early either. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the work-life balance was okay, but it, it was kind of like a full working week, but you're only being paid for the hours that you teach. So it was like on it was like being paid for part time when actually you're working full time. Yeah. Um how if somebody were to were looking at some jobs or weighing some options here um with different schools in Taiwan, um and they during the interview they say, Hey, do we need to mark homework? The school says, Yes, that is part of your job. They say, Is it paid? The employer says, Sorry, it's not. Is there is there a line that you could draw personally saying, hey, it's okay to mark a little, but we can't go over this? That's a good question. I mean, I was always a very difficult employee, like I told you. So I found from my personal experience and the experience of a lot of my friends, the English schools here will take as much as they possibly can, right? So in a teacher situation, let's say you start work at 9.30 in the morning there would be a meeting all of a sudden. They say, okay, now we start work at 8.30 in the morning. And it wouldn't they wouldn't be giving you anything else. So they'd say, oh, now everyone has to do an open house once every two weeks. So I felt like the English schools here were constantly trying to take, you know, squeeze as much as they could out of the teachers. Um, and so putting my foot down is, is something that I did quite a lot, actually. And, you know, I had one school that I taught in where, every meeting that we had with the teachers and the management was like a battle. And they would say, well, here, we're going to do this now. And then the teachers would be outraged. And it was it was a pretty toxic working culture. There was a real split between management and foreign teachers. Well, what can you what can you do when you're when you see your schedule kind of going down that road, like adding all of this homework and, um, you know, these um, you said open houses and right. stuff as well. Well, what what can you do in those situations? Well, unfortunately, I felt like you needed to push back. So the only, you know, if you were Mr. Nice Guy and you just said yes to everything, you would end up being paid a, a small amount for a huge amount of work. Whereas when they say to you, okay, now you need to do this, if you say, hold on, why, why, you know, if you're going to make us do this, then we want this. Like you do have to be a little bit hard nosed. You have to stick up for yourself. You can't be too soft with the management here. Is that is that advice you'd even give for somebody whose job or whose visa is dependent on their job? This is kind. Of, this is a thing people. That's a good question. Yeah, this is a this is a this is a difficult question because a lot of times yeah. places, well, schools here will kind of hang that over your head, right? Right. Right. Did you have that issue? So I always felt ready to quit, you know, which is maybe not the attitude that a lot of people would have, but I always felt like if they pushed me too hard, I would quit. I had no, no problem leaving the school and I would threaten to quit. So like I said, I was quite a difficult employee, but, you know, let's say after my first year, I told them I was going to quit because they, in my annual review, they gave me quite a negative review. And so I told them, no, okay, I'm, I'm going. I'm not going to change anything about me. I was quite bullish about it. No way. 
There's no way you And then like I that. ended up coming back, actually. I ended up coming back. And I did the same thing in my kindergarten halfway through. So in after my third year, I told my kindergarten I was quitting. And then I came back. I, I interviewed for a few other jobs and didn't find anything better. So I came back. This was very arrogant. I maybe shouldn't have done this. <laughs> so I came back to my kindergarten and I said, you know what? I will stay if you give me 5,000 NT more. And they said, okay. Per month. Per month. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was always ready to quit. You know, and when you say ready, obviously in your in your mind you were, but what about um, visa issues that might arise or finding another job? Or well, did you have contingencies for these things as well? I, I yeah, I, I never had a situation where I was desperate to find a job, but I had a lot of friends and connections and I was pretty confident that if I had quit a job, I would be able to find a different teaching job. Mm. I don't think it would have been too difficult. I don't know what the situation is like nowadays. There has to be a middle ground there. I mean, you know, you don't want to be pushed around because your visa is dependent on a certain company. I mean, you have to have plan B, plan C at all times. If your school is pushing you too hard, you should have a contingency plan. And what can what can you do to, to have a plan like that? You can in interview in different companies. You can keep your eyes open to, you know, which friends, schools are looking for teachers. You can... You know, yeah, keep keep your eyes open, basically. Keep an updated CV yeah. on hand. For a headhunter, I'm surprised you didn't say that. Yeah, keep an updated <laughs> CV, exactly. You know, try and save a bit of money so that you're not going to be desperate if you quit your job for some reason. What were, what do you think management's expectations were of you before you arrived and then after you arrived and actually got into the position? Well... I mean, one thing that is talked about a lot in the foreigner community is the dichotomy between the inexperienced foreign teacher who is paid a lot of money and the experienced Chinese teacher who is paid half the salary of the foreign teacher. And there's a real tension there because the Chinese teachers, like I said, are experienced and they are the ones dealing with these foreigners who have no job experience and are useless teachers for at least three months right absolutely at least three months and so you know that can be difficult that can be a difficult relationship some chinese teachers are less patient than others so if you can form a good bond with your chinese teacher and at least prove that you're trying then the relationship is slightly better and and expectations are, are lowered perhaps whereas if you if you have a bad relationship with your Chinese teacher it can make things a lot worse so basically what management wants is the parents to be happy the, the the parents who are paying for these kids to go to the school they want the parents to be happy so if if during parents days you can charm the parents, your life is just way easier. Like you really need to know what the end goal is for the school. And so they want the kids to enjoy the class and learn a little bit, but the parents are the clients. The parents are the ones paying. That's a very good point. Um, how much influence do you think parents exert over management in a school? I think a lot. Mm. Um, in kindergarten, the parents are incredibly influential. The kindergarten I worked at was very expensive. It's known for being one of the fancy kindergartens. 
And so the parents had incredibly high expectations and the kids were between three and five years old. So the parents are very involved, yeah. And managing the parents and having a good relationship with the parents can make or break your job. If the parents are unhappy with you or the management is unhappy with you it makes your job far more difficult and how do you how do you manage expectations of parents you have to speak to them and you have to charm them mm. you have to be open to ha- making them laugh and making them like you that's what you want you want the parents to like you so if the parents come and pick up their kids you got to say hello and you got to sh- you got to say a nice goodbye to their kid you got to in the parents' days, you need to dress up nicely and be well, well groomed, right? So charming the parents and and making the parents like you is massively influential to how much you'll enjoy your job and how much pressure you'll experience. Did management give you, um, I guess, the tools, the resources, uh, the confidence to teach the kids? so that parents were happy with what they were coming home or with what they were um, um, using outside of the classroom? Yes, I think so. And I think there was uh, there was something that I personally used a lot, which uh, the parents and the management absolutely loved. So that was music, right? So I would bring in my guitar and I would teach kids adult songs. I wouldn't teach them the kind of you know, I I would teach them Jason Mraz and I would teach them Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and uh, Lady Gaga songs, you know, and the parents loved that and the kids loved it. And that won me a lot of favors, a lot of favors. Yeah. So you were, so you, you felt empowered kind of to use a talent that you had to, to teach the kids um, better, I guess. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And, um, yeah, I think I used that to my advantage. But, you know, you could use magic if you're good at card tricks or wh- whatever you have that is kind of cool or a little bit different. Those are the kind of things that um, the parents will latch on to and notice. What if you're, what if you're in a school where, the, where management wants you to follow the book to the T? Um, is there something that you can say or maybe do to get them on board with you wanting to, to use these things in the classroom? That's a good question. I mean, a lot of it comes down to management of the management. Like, how is your relationship with the management? I mean, if if the management like you, you get away with far more, basically. I, I taught at a school where one of the teachers was not liked by the management, and his day was just so much more difficult. He would be criticized at every opportunity, and you know, it was it wasn't a nice experience watching it. You know, whereas maybe because I played guitar and the parents liked me, I would get away with far more. It was like I just had a much better relationship in the office. Like even after I quit the job, I would go in and visit and I would get a lot of smiles. Oh, hi, teacher Alan, you know, and that's, I'm much happier in that kind of situation rather than that battle every day, Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you give us a, 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 um, the listeners an example of an unreasonable um, expectation that was placed on you and then kind of what you did to navigate through it? <laughs> an unreasonable expectation. That's a good question. I mean, when I was when I was teaching kindergarten, we had to give the kids exams. So like three-page exams. And these are three-year-olds, which is a little bit crazy. Um, 
and yeah, I didn't, I guess I didn't really do anything. I kind of, I just wrote the exams and, and did them. I'm really, I'm struggling to come up with an example, to be honest. The, the only unreasonable expectations I can think of weren't to do with the syllabus and the teaching because I didn't have a problem with the teaching. I wanted the kids to get better at English. So we were on side in that respect. The unreasonable demands were all about my time and them taking more of it than they previously did. So, for example, like the, the example I gave earlier where we used to come into the office at 8.45 and they wanted us to come in at 8.15. And then there was a certain amount of uh, lunchtime that we used for class preparation. And basically they wanted us to spend more time in the classroom and less time prepping. And we used the prepping to kind of have some jokes and some fun with, with the other foreign teachers, which is something I really enjoyed. And... Uh, the kindergarten kept trying to take that away before you said that you had you taught for four years and then now you've completely transitioned right out of the esl industry had, were any of these factors into doing that absolutely hmm. i think a lot of it was to do with my own expectations of myself i didn't want to be a teacher and my mom uh, so I did very well academically. I, I was one of those kind of straight A students at, at, at high school and I got a full scholarship to boarding school when I was 18 and I went to one of the best universities in the world and I have a master's degree. So I felt like I was not living up to my own uh, potential and my mother, who has very high expectations, was annoyed at what I was doing with my life. And so I felt like I needed a different career. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of it was was to do with that, that I, I wasn't happy with, with teaching and I wasn't happy with where my career was going and I definitely did not want to be in a teaching position for more than I was. If I could go back, I probably would have tried to get out of teaching after two years rather than four years. Did you learn any um, valuable skills while you were teaching ESL for those four years. Yeah, absolutely. Teaching is a really, a really difficult job, and controlling a classroom is a is a very difficult thing to do, and it's something that you get a lot better at with practice, and that is definitely a transferable skill. So the confidence to speak and you know to be the center of attention at the front of the classroom and to hold attention and to be tough when you need to be tough and funny when you need to be funny and charming when you need to be charming and know how to get the most out of the people learning from you. All of these are incredibly important transferable skills. Yeah. I, I did a project when I was in my third year of teaching English where I was asked to go into a big telecom company in Taiwan and teach some music. So I did that project for three months through a friend of a friend of a friend, basically. And so I, I went in and I met with these 23 adults in this big telecom company, and I was in charge of teaching them this song or these two songs. And if I hadn't taught, I never would have had the confidence to do that. But I had no problem standing up and saying, okay, okay, everyone, here's what we're going to do. And that kind of thing takes practice. It mm. takes time. Yeah. What... um. How can how can teachers cultivate some of these uh, transferable skills that you hinted at in the classroom? 
Are there things that they can, can they go into the classroom every day and kind of focus on a few things? Um, how would you, what would you suggest people do? Because obviously, there a lot of people that come into the ESL industry aren't going to stay here for forever, right? Yeah, um, you have to you have to focus on what you're good at and what you're not good at, and try and improve on the things that you're not so good at. Um, constructive feedback can be important. It can be difficult to take in, but constructive feedback can be good. Learning from other teachers, like. Uh, in all of the schools I taught at, there were some very good teachers and it's, you know, learning from those people is really important. It's funny that you, uh, you hinted at feedback because that's definitely something you will get me in a teacher in Taiwan. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get any, any feedback that you weren't quite fond of? There was one Chinese teacher that I had who was new and she was very aggressive. She was a, a difficult person, you know, um, I think in psychological terms, you'd call that disagreeable. So she was a very disagreeable person and she would push around a lot of the other foreign teachers. And she would do things like most Chinese teachers, when you're teaching, they'll just get on with marking or class preparation. And she would sit on a desk and just watch you the whole time to the point where you felt like she was judging absolutely everything you did and said, right? And so a lot of the foreign teachers were really struggling with her. And there was one point where I had marked an exam and she came back to me and she was angry with me because she didn't think I had marked it well. And she said, I want you to remark this. And we had a massive fight. We basically ended up yelling at each other in the office. So there was no kids around, but all of the other staff were there. And we had a big shouting match and I was taken to an office and she was taken to an office and we were both spoken to. And even though the confrontation was not, you know, maybe not great, she ended up getting a lot better because I was, I was seen as the victim, which was funny. I didn't really feel like that. I thought I was going to get into trouble, but I came into work the next day and someone had said to her, you need to improve your relationship with the foreign teachers. They're very angry with you. They feel like you're too difficult to work with. And so she ended up becoming much better. And so in that situation, every other foreign teacher was afraid of the confrontation, whereas I stepped up and confronted her for being too too, uh, too disagreeable or, mm. or too difficult to work with. And the other foreign teachers were super happy with me that I had bitten the bullet and she improved as a teacher. So even though that was difficult to do, um, it did end up, improving my my life and the life of the other teachers before you had said that um you were not the greatest of employees yeah um did was there was there a reason because of that was that maybe because of the people that you worked with such as this this lady and you just kind of felt like you weren't being heard um yeah how how did you how how were you able to kind of work through that so that you could yeah teach your class as well kids yeah. don't kids don't deserve to to kind of take the brunt end of of these conflicts. So. Do you know, in, in, in this podcast that we've done together, I feel like I've contradicted myself a few times because on the one hand, I'm saying, you know, I was quite a good teacher and the parents liked me and the kids really liked me and I cared about how much the kids were learning, right? But on the other side, I didn't really care too much about teaching itself and I didn't really prepare for classes. I didn't like spending my own time 
working extra hours and I was quite uh, difficult with the management. I pushed back a lot more than some other people did. So I think my experience teaching was a bit of both sides of that coin. Mm. Yeah, so like I, I did care about my kids. I thought the kids were super cute and I enjoyed that part of the job and I really didn't enjoy the confrontation part with the management. Like, I think if I was still teaching now after 10 years, I'd have a much better relationship and I, I could imagine myself having zero issues. I could imagine myself being the one to be speaking to the other foreign teachers and kind of explaining the lay of the land. That's really interesting that you say that because I kind of have the had the opposite oh, is that right? um, experience where like at the beginning I, I, I felt like I was a really good employee and I worked my you know, I worked my ass off. And I probably did a lot of work that I that I should have and I yeah. probably should have, you know, um stood up for myself a bit more. But now after being so seasoned and feeling that I've seen pretty much everything, yeah. I I would definitely be a bit more disagreeable, I think. Absolutely. So it's interesting that you that you, that you say that. I've seen teachers do both both go both ways. Uh, there was a teacher I taught with in one of my kindergartens who had been he's been in Taiwan 20 years and he's a super calm, really nice, really smart Canadian guy. Love him. He's such a good guy. And I would get into these small fights with management and he never ever would. His life was just so easy. Everyone loved him. He never had any problems at work. And he had just learned to game the system, basically. He didn't let anything bother him. He'd seen it all a million times, you know, and he knew how to manage the management and he knew how to manage the parents. And he was an experienced teacher and seemed like nothing would bother him. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the one of the big things that you can do in those situations is to um, basically agree when you're face to face, but then kind of when you're in the classroom, not not do the exact opposite, but you it, it's going to be a bit different because they don't have the experience in the classroom. So I think that's probably what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, I think so. He was getting the results that they wanted, so I guess they didn't really care. So. I mean, there's a lot to be said for kind of smile and nod. You know, is, it's like yeah. you, you don't need to fight about every small issue. Just smile and nod. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As we're finishing up here, do you have any practical advice for anybody looking at opportunities in the ESL industry? Um, maybe s certain places, you know, should they come here? Should they not? Types of schools, maybe? Because you also taught at a, a different school, not a bushy band, am I correct? Yeah, I taught at yeah. a kindergarten for two years. I enjoyed teaching kindergarten more because it was easier and it was eight hours a day. But in that eight hours, you're teaching, you're not teaching very often. When you're in bushy band system, quite often you're being used as much as possible. So you're being thrown into lots of classrooms and lots of different kids. Whereas kindergarten, I just taught the same kids for a year. So, and it was a lot more money. So I would say kindergarten is better. I think when you're interviewing for a job, you have to try and find management that you quite like. That's important. The best advice I ever had about teaching was in the teacher training that you and I were in. And it was a South African guy called Tim. And he said, the not, per <laughs> not you, the perfect teacher is Jekyll and Hyde. And it took me a couple of years to realize what he was talking about. But basically he was saying, you have to be the disciplinarian, but you can also be 
um, the fun guy, but you have to be both. You can't be one or the other. You have to be the mix. Yeah. And that's hard to do. That took, geez, that took, took me years. years. Yeah. yeah, it took me years. But if you can, th- if you can take that lesson from the very start, like don't let your kids get out of control. Like you have to, my, my uncle is a, is a, is a professional teacher. He was a headmaster for years in a primary school in the UK. And he said for the first two weeks, he doesn't crack any jokes at all. And that, that makes sense now that I've taught for a while like you start off as a disciplinarian and then you slowly start to introduce fun and humor. If you start with the fun and humor, your kids get out of control way too quickly. And then it's very difficult reeling them in once they're hyperactive. Yep. And I had, yeah, I, I ran into that same issue. Oh, man. I thought it was actually um, a lot more difficult in, in, in the bushy bond where we taught because once you're with a class, once you start with him, you basically you're with them for four years if you decide to stay there. Yeah. And they from the very beginning they have they have you they have you pinned as the fun person and you just they just trample all over you if 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 you let them for four years. Yeah. And and what what ends <laughs> up happening as well is you are the fun guy for a while and it's all fun up until the class kind of goes out of control and then you lose your temper and then you end up shouting at kids. You know, you end up shouting at classes to sit down and be quiet and it's not nice to lose your temper and it makes you feel horrible and yeah, it's not great really. You, you be- you're better off establishing control from the start. Don't try and be the likable person from day one like that can come a bit later once you're more experienced i think that's awesome advice and i completely agree thanks all right well why don't we uh why don't we cut it there um i really appreciate you you um setting up this office space for us to come and have a little no problem thanks tim yeah not a problem all right well take care alan thank you so much cheers Enjoyed this episode of the Teaching While Learning podcast? Head on over to your favorite podcast service to subscribe, leave a review, or offer up some constructive feedback on what you just heard. We also have a growing community on LinkedIn, so if you'd like to connect with other like-minded ESL professionals, search for Teaching While Learning and join us. I appreciate you clicking on this episode, and I hope to have you back.